Hey there, if you're enjoying The Wild and want us to keep on making more of it, we could really use your help on one small thing. If you could click on the listener survey in the show notes or at kurw.org slash the wild, I'd love to hear from you about this season, what you liked, what you didn't, who you are, and the stories you want to hear more of in our next season. And if you do, we'll enter you into a drawing for one of 20 wild posters signed by me. Thanks. People are in the wild for all kinds of reasons. For some, it's their job, and when it comes to filmmaking, the very best of them are on a mission. A mission to get as close as possible to the animals they are documenting. Imagine standing in uh, a crowd of 500,000 Joe Pesci's from Goodfellas. It's kind (laughs) of like that, and they go completely nuts. That's Jeff Wilson. He's a producer I've worked with before. We became friends among the bears of Alaska filming for the BBC. And he's involved with top shows like Planet Earth, Frozen Planet and Our Planet. You know, we're literally sitting in there thinking this, the roof is going to come off this thing. Uh, we're going to die. All the equipment's going to be blown away. Um, and it was just an extraordinary experience. And that's Mark Smith. He has filmed some of the most memorable scenes you've seen on TV. These guys have become a formidable duo. Remember the scene of the snow leopard chasing its prey off a cliff? That was these guys. This is a tale of fortitude and resilience and the people behind the amazing images you see in wildlife documentaries. Jeff and Mark spent four months filming penguins on the coldest and windiest continent on Earth, Antarctica. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. Jeff Wilson and Mark Smith have been to the Antarctic twice to document penguins for Frozen Planet and Disney Nature. They've spent months at the Adelie Penguin Colony at Cape Crozier. Cape Crozier was made famous by early explorers like Robert Falcon Scott, who sent an expedition there in 1911 to gather emperor penguin eggs. The journey was later described in the book, The Worst Journey in the World. (laughs) Cape Crozier is a barren, frozen landscape. The winds are so fierce that they blow all snow and ice off the ground, leaving bare rock, perfect for Adelie penguins to set up their nests for the mating season. Mark describes the first day he and Jeff arrived at the Adelie penguin colony. I remember very well. It was a beautiful day. Uh, We got everything unpacked and um, thought, this is going to be a doddle. And it was literally within 24 hours. We went out and the wind started to get up and we got into one of the biggest storms, well, definitely the biggest storm I've ever been in. Winds up to 150 miles an hour and we were stuck in this cabin for, for three, four days. Wow. You know, we're literally sitting in there thinking, this, the roof is going to come off this thing, uh, we're going to die, all the equipment's going to be blown away. Um, and it was just an extraordinary experience. Off to a fairly positive start then, hey? Just yeah, it was. <laughs> with that, that list of things. Yeah, bear in mind, neither of us had been to Antarctica before. You know, we were literally had been thrown in the deep end. Um, you know, we, we'd intentionally arrived before the Adelis had come back to the continent of Antarctica and, and someone had failed to explain to us that an entire, an Adelie colony is basically 
um, built on thousands and thousands and thousands of years of decaying dead penguins. And so I remember walking into the colony that first time mm-hmm. and all you see for as far as the eye can see is basically penguin carcasses. And I, and I can re- distinctly remember thinking, bloody hell, we've got this completely wrong. Someone's going to come and pick us up in two months. We won't have filmed a thing because all the penguins are dead. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and how are we going to solve this one? Are we going to have to start animating carcasses or something <laughs> like that to kind of make ourselves look better? Um, but it's a shocking thing because it's, you know, it is literally, you know, mm. every, the substrate of a penguin colony is just dead. It's just thousands penguins. of years of mummified penguins because nothing really decays there. It just gets, you know, it's sort of frozen into the ground. Wow. And then the penguins arrived when? At what point did you start seeing them come back? So they're pretty faithful to around about October 15th. Um, and that's what we'd sort of taken away from our conversations with the scientists. And I remember we had our big storm and there weren't many penguins around. And then the storm finished after three or four days and we went back, we went down and suddenly they were... They were kind of just arriving, weren't they? Mm-hmm. I see. And it's just, you see a penguin come over the horizon, there's one that turns into how, how big is this colony eventually? Well, it, it, I think it gets up to uh, half a million. I mean, it's the la- now, it wasn't at the time, but it is now the largest Adelie penguin colony wow. on the planet. You know, it's, it, you get 500,000 penguins plus there, uh, 250,000 breeding pairs. It's pretty um, impressive because I mean you you you're up the colony is from sea level up this slope and so when you're up the slope you get a look out over the sea ice and when you look out the 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 sea the actual open sea to start with is maybe I don't know two miles further out from the shore and so you're looking looking you're scanning the horizon eventually you'll see these little dots coming you know thousands of little dots coming towards you and of course when they start arriving then then you I mean the defining thing about a, an Adelie penguin colony is just is, is just chaos I mean it's you know it's it's full of dead penguins because that's where they you know not many of them make it through the season but it, it suddenly ends up being I remember Mark you talking about it like being a war zone it just it goes from being a very placid kind of cold beautiful place to this just chaotic war zone that you mm. then have to try and make a film in and, and war zone in terms of what competition between them or just just the mayhem of the place well, everything's dying. You know, basically, you know, it's for for the skewers, for instance, there's these birds, the skewers that all that that uh, predate the, the the chicks, and so and by January, February, the temperature's gone up, so it's it's above freezing, so all the frozen mud is now liquid mud. All the mummified penguins that were underfoot are now uh, floating around in this mud. The skewers are killing anything they can. So there's basically a mixture of blood and mud and uh, penguin poo all over the place. And you're wading around in the stuff. And that mixed in with the noise of the colony, the constant noise of the colony. It's most extraordinarily um, oppressive place to be after a while. It's fine, you know, for a few days it's, it's amazing, but... After a you know three months of it, I, I literally would go down. I'd be there for an hour, and I'd, say, I'd have to I have to walk away up the hill to get to, to hear myself think. Um, so really? yeah, it's, it definitely had its its moments. You know that there aren't any human noises, and so your entire. Um 
you know, stimuli, audi- auditory stimuli is all coming from the natural world, which is an amazing thing. And there was a there was a sound recordist who came down as part of that project who pointed out that there that this is a kind of place where the sound hasn't changed since Scott and his team were there a hundred years ago. There's no overflights from passing jets you know you don't hear the sound of generators or or cars or or anything it's just exactly the same sound as it has been for millennia and that's an incredible thing but like mark says when it's 500,000 penguins screaming at you and then you start hearing them a couple of them say your name after a couple of them you know they're going jeff 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 that's definitely true i yeah that starts to play on your mind yeah it really does i heard exactly the same thing yeah what jeff or mark mark yeah <laughs> let's talk for a minute about so you're living basically in a shipping container it looked like to me up the hill from the penguins right and and what was your sort of your daily routine and your eating and sleeping and i have a list here eating sleeping crapping and bathing <laughs> <laughs> what, what what did your routine we consist of? We only did a of? few of those things <laughs> in our time. We tried to hold off the crapping. <laughs> it's too painful to, to get outside. The toilet was interesting, actually. The toilet was uh, attached, was a, a basically a cupboard attached to the outside of the, uh, effectively, the, the heart. And so you had to go outside and, and open this thing. It was shaped like an upright coffin or a bit like a rocket. It was sort of pointy at one end. And... Um, it, most weathers it was all right, but then, you know, when there was a storm blowing, it really felt like the whole thing was about to take off. <laughs> um, so, so you really, you know, it kind of speeded everything up quite, quite well. I don't know, I had performance anxiety when the wind was knocking at yeah. the door. Yeah, it was hard to get this one out. Mm. Um, anyway, so, that was so, the, uh, that was the, what was the other I love list? it. I love how quickly it comes around to toilets when you're talking to Brits, you know, it's like... Uh, it, it, it's, it's but awesome. you know, the extraordinary thing about, I mean, so Antarctica is governed by some very um, well thought out, very serious rules. So all of that excrement that we were generating is it has to we have to take it with us you know it's not as if you're just um doing what you would do in most parts of the world is you know going into a hole and burying it at the end you have to put everything in a bucket and carry it out with you afterwards wow so luckily obviously it's cold enough for it all to freeze so otherwise it could get really heinous but it it, is this is kind of amazing thing that you think at the end of it you're taking absolutely everything with you every ounce of urine every every little bit of poo that you've you know generated is all coming with you so it's a right it's an extraordinary logistics uh, the extreme um, version of leave no trace right well exactly Mm. it's exactly that and when when you're in this 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 little shack this it, it it looked like a little shipping container for for months or weeks on end just two of you maybe three of you how how are you managing to stay sane you hinted already that it's it was a you had these moments of, of fleeting insanity but how did you stay focused and 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 together hmm, good question <laughs> we tried cooking but that didn't really i mean we you know, we, do, we we tried cooking lots of things, and they all ended up tasting fairly similar, regardless of what the ingredients were. Um, mm. That kept us going for a little while. We I, played games with the. Uh, you remember we played games with the cereal packets. Yes, every every because all of the food is American branded food. So if you're thinking things like Aunt Jemima's, you know, syrup and uh, and I don't know what's the guy on the front of the Kellogg's Oh, Frosties. Quaker Oats. I don't know yeah, what he was oh, yeah, called. Quaker the Quaker Oats, Oats yeah. Mr. Quaker. Yeah, um, anyway, we used to get them down and we'd have, a little, you know, we'd have little parties with them. Yeah, I think we'd talk to each other, channeling it through the branded faces of American foodstuffs. 
That's, yeah, <laughs> that, and that's that's perfectly sane. And, so and that, by this yeah. time, you guys have spent a lot of time together, and you got to know each other. There's no place like that to get the, the, to get to know each other uh, quicker, is mm. there? And were the things that drove you mm. crazy about each other? I mean, you must know each other so well at this point, you know. But were the things that were like, God, I wish Mark would stop doing that, or whenever Jeff does that, <laughs> wish he'd close the toilet door. I'm, I'm sure uh, knitting. I, I I started knitting. I wish you'd uh, stopped knitting. I was <laughs> terrible. And I try. I started knitting just to try and take my mind off, you know, being around you know the same person all the time so i could concentrate on that and not have to make conversation but it was really i was knitting a hat it got it was i found it really difficult to remember how many you know when you're going around when you're knitting the hat and you've got to remember each one so you're trying to make it smaller as you go up and it, i just couldn't do that so in the end that drove me absolutely mad as well so, so it ended stopped. up being more of a net gator type thing <laughs> yeah exactly yeah you know i can see you've done the same thing yeah <laughs> The good thing about Mark is that if you leave him to his own devices, he becomes so pissed off with himself that it's impossible for him to, <laughs> to get pissed off with you to the same level. So <laughs> the, the thing is to just stay quiet, let him go through his cycle, and then and let him come out the other side. <laughs> the perfect word. We're not really partner. answering the question, are we? <laughs> Do you know, I tell you what, I tell you what, I think, you know, Mark, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but we, we tend to quite often split up in the colony so that we weren't in each other's presence, yes. at least towards the end. You know, quite so that when we came back at the end of the day, we actually had something to talk about yeah. in terms of yeah. what we would. Yeah. What did you see? Penguin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God, me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that at least gave us a little bit of something to talk about when we eventually came back to the hut. You know, and were trapped in there for. Yeah, yeah. So um, you guys were just filming the Disney nature film as well. And uh, were the circumstances similar as they were during the filming of, of Frozen Planet? Yeah, so very similar. Yeah, in fact, it was yeah, it was quite interesting because we I certainly for me, you know, one of the most petrifying things I found about doing about being there before was once you'd experienced. We we're talking about that storm and that wind. Uh, I remember very clearly the sound of that that wind before it hit us, which was like a squadron of of seven four seven jets in the distance. It was like unmistakably, uh, you know, awful. I do remember that that clip of you, Mark, uh, pouring your thermos of tea, and the tea was just flying horizontally across the the landscape. None of it ended up in your cup because of the 130-mile-an-hour wind. It was crazy to watch. I mean, the the way that that cup of tea um, experiment came about was that one of the things that, again, is, is, is particular to that part of Antarctica is that when you have these really high winds, there's, it, it can often be a, you know, a high-pressure day in, in that there's no cloud forms around and there's very little snow on the ground. So actually under, being able to visualise wind is a very, very difficult thing. There are no, clearly there are no trees, there are no bushes, there's no buildings that can kind of show that they're being blown around by wind. So we, we were trying to figure out on that particular day how to communicate to people back home quite how strong the wind was, because if you just pointed a camera out the window, it looked like a, just a normal kind of cold, sunny mm. Antarctic day. But, you know, it, it didn't really reflect how strong that storm was. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Jeff Wilson and Mark Smith will talk more about Adelie penguins and their amazing resilience in one of the harshest environments in the world. (laughs) 
these two words pop into my head, this fortitude and resilience that you guys had to have, and then the fortitude and resilience of these penguins. Let's switch a little bit to, to the penguins. It, you've described this uh, almost like a, a death zone, but it's almost a, a, a place of rebirth at the same time. It's a curious mix, isn't it? Um, can you explain why these penguins are there and when they're there and what they're doing. So Adelie penguins, they come back to land, um, to the mainland of Antarctica to breed, and they do that over a four-month period, and that's between the months of October and February. And in that really short period of time, they've got to do everything. They've got to build a nest, they've got to um, meet a mate, they've got to mate, they've got to lay eggs, they've got to rear, um, incubate those eggs get them to hatch, rear their chicks, and then get them everybody out of the colony by February, by which time the, the weather starts changing and the sea ice starts building again. So they've got a very, very, very intense period of time in which to kind of do their entire breeding life cycle. And because it's so short, that drives pretty much everything in a, in an Adelie penguin's life during those months you know so that's why they're so competitive that's why um they 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 come together in huge numbers they've just got to get through this this breeding period as quickly as they possibly can and then the half a million of them arrive these screaming penguins just down the hill from your your container shack what are they doing when they first arrive there that they're, they're sort of they just start to gather and, and huddle together against the elements well then first of all the <clears throat> the males arrive back first and they arrive back to sort of claim their ter- territory and so they're there for a, for a week or so beforehand, and um, and they're just displaying to themselves, and they're building the nest, and they're to do that they're collecting you know little pebbles and stones, and defending their little two feet around that that nest, and so mm. at that stage it's you know it's quite um, it, it's all quite gentle and nice, and they're displaying rather beautifully on their nest, and then after a week the females come back and then uh then it all go it kicks off a bit because then uh there's a fair bit of disputes going on and there's males who don't have females or whose females have died um and so they start roaming around and they try and get they're trying to get another female and so there's that at that point there's a huge amount of fighting going on and it can be incredibly violent um I mean, they'll fight to the death, uh, and the, so the, they, the best position in those uh, in those colonies is sort of in the middle. So, because uh, if they're in the middle, they're further away from the, the skewers who are trying to predate the, the chicks. So, that ideally, you'd find a female and get a nest in the middle. And so, to get to that position, you know, you've got to you you have to fight. So, that's when a lot of the action happens, and um, you know, so that's that's kind of the point at which everything kicks off. What you have at Cape Crozier is extraordinary um, uh, juxtaposition of emperor penguins because there's a small emperor penguin colony there and you really get to understand the difference between an Adelie and an an emperor. Hmm. And we always thought that kind of the emperors are like stoner penguins, right? They just sit there and they're kind of curious and easygoing and, you know, they'll come up and say hello, but everyone's pretty calm. And I think it's mainly because they're fairly bird-brained, you know, they don't, not much is going on between the eyes in an emperor penguin. But an Adelie penguin, conversely, is kind of like a super over-caffeinated penguin. And these guys (laughs) are on a mission and they just are, you know, they're, 
bashing the hell out of each other they're bashing the hell out of us that they you know they are literally on a mission and and, and no one's going to stop them you imagine it's it's kind of like imagine standing in uh, a crowd of 500,000 Joe Pesci's from Goodfellas it's kind <laughs> of like that and they go completely nuts but you know joking aside that's what makes the deli such an amazing subject for filming is that they have this abundance of character that that you can see you know even between individuals in the colony you can see the ones that are slightly more uh, relaxed or slightly more pissed off or slightly more kind of ambitious it's it's it seems extraordinary to say that but you there are distinct differences in the ways that all of those you know 500,000 or 250,000 breeding pairs approach life which is really the definition of character and that was kind of makes them an interesting subject for film. Yeah, and so when you get back to your shack, and I know you guys, you've probably got a bottle of scotch to celebrate certain moments with there, you know, what were some of those moments? What were like your high five moments of, oh my God, can you believe that just happened? Yeah, I was certainly one was, um, I was talking about the ma- when the males are, are building their, their, their nests out of rocks, and um, there's some very funny behavior goes on. We were really lucky to be able to film some of that which is um you know mostly the peng- the males have to they're building the nest and they have to walk off to find stones and they may have to walk you know 20 30 meters to go and find a good collection mm. of stones to and then walk back to the nest and then but some of the penguins have cleverly worked out that why bother to walk 20 30 meters when you can just steal stones from the <laughs> nest next door and um so it's absolutely hilarious to watch that happening because the poor penguin who's walking, you know, 20 metres, 30 metres back and forth is totally oblivious to the the penguin that just nips literally two feet away to steal the stones. And, you know, it's such a, a, a great bit of behaviour that we managed to get it, it all, almost all in one with very little editing needed because the, the, the birds are so close together. You can, you're able to film it very, very easily. And it basically told the story itself. And I think that was definitely one of those moments when we got back and it was just, yes, that is just funny in any language. That stone stealing is happening a lot, but to get the perfect combination of an animal coming in and out of frame and the other one still being in the background and looking over its shoulder and coming <laughs> in and, and having it all happen in real time without the the need for an edit is is an extraordinary you know i mean correct me if i'm wrong mark but it didn't it didn't happen on the first day did it it's kind of like mm-hmm. that's just persistence and persistence and persistence mm-hmm. to be um observing and watching and and turning over and failing time and time again to get the perfect shot but you can't better what Mark achieved in that particular sequence that, amazing that is, you know obviously we're there to capture behavior but we, you want people to understand you know, at least I do. I want people to understand that penguins are more than just cute and funny. And I think, you know, seeing the fighting and the stone stealing and, and you know, just some of the things that make them uh, that make them have uh, faults, which in, in, in a bizarre way makes them more relatable. I mean, I think personally, I find animals that are put on a pedestal and, and given a whole bunch of wonder completely unrelatable. It's the ones that, that are slightly angry or have bad days or get pissed off that make them feel much more in connection with human life you know much more on a continuum with with our characters and i think i think adelis are perfect for that because you can see that happening right right so you guys have have, have spent so much time in these wild far away places that most people never go to and then you get to share what you've seen with the rest of the world in these incredible incredible films how how mark i'll start with you how does that how does that make you feel when you see your work on a screen where you've 
you've been through that real raw experience and now it's come to the world? I think from the point of view of a cameraman, it's very difficult to see what you filmed without also remembering all the stuff which you didn't film and missed. <laughs> right. You know, you're out there and you've seen so many, so much amazing stuff that for whatever reason you weren't able to, to film. So it's a painful experience for you, Mark. <laughs> initially, initially, it's a painful experience. And then over time, you forget all that stuff and you see it for what it is. And what about you, Jeff? I think, I think you know, the ultimately for me personally, the just every time that we put a, a bit of the natural world on screen, um, and you no, know, regardless of the amount of effort that's put into it, is is a complete you know privilege. And when you come back from these experiences after being away from home for so long, that reimmersion must be quite difficult and strange. Hey, I mean, Mark, what what does that feel like? That that, that reentry. Well. All I can say is that I think a very good strategy is to have some kind of halfway house where when you come back that you can, uh, if you can spend a day somewhere else before you um, sort of revisit the family, then it's a hell of a lot better than if you just go straight back in there. Because you're right, it's um, it's quite, it is quite tough, uh, especially because you, you know, you've just got used to your way of life, you know, and you go back and you you really have to sort of try and slot back into the family and uh, expected to do the washing up and all the things that you're expected to do. And you really, your head is still dealing with half a million penguins and death. <laughs> you just, you're a bit of a basket case. And so quite often I'll just end up going back home and I'll, I definitely remember one occasion I just went back and I, would, I just sat on the couch at home for an entire day looking out the window, just, wondering what had happened and so yeah mentally it's uh, it's an interesting thing to deal with and, and and with that jeff when you come back i mean you've got a lot of time to think about things in these wild places and then you come back and you might not have that processing time or but but, but when you do what do these places make you think about our world or the sort of bigger broader perspective i know that's a it's a big question but I think we're in the fortunate minority in that it's almost the reverse, where these wild places allow you to kind of have perspective on your own life. You know, you disappear for a month and you don't have the pressures that we all have in our daily lives, you know, in our in our normal adult, you know, world. And you go out and you and you 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 get a perspective on everything and then you come back and you find it a lot easier to deal with so i i actually find it restorative rather than a a, a problem when i come back you know i i sort of i feel like at least i think i come back a better person but my wife might say differently but the but i do but it does it does give you just a little bit more of a calm approach to to you know the problems which we all face which end up being incredibly minor when you when you look at them from a thousand miles away and your films have been seen by countless millions i dare say maybe even billions of people at this point and what do you hope people take away and in the case of in the case of penguins in particular you know what what uh what do you want someone to feel, do, experience during and after that film? Well, personally, I think that you have to hope that the audience feels some empathy with those penguins and, you know, understands the struggles that they've gone through so that when they, you know, people read in the news about, you know, overfishing or, you know, problems in the Ross Sea where 
the penguins are feeding is that they're already sensitive to what lives there. And it's not just some disembodied bit of news, but there may be, you know, they can relate to the fact, oh, that's where those penguins, you know, are living. And if it's, you know, if there's a problem there, then these penguins are going to have, are going to be uh, less well off. And so hopefully, you know, it all adds up bit by bit to, to making people more sensitive, more aware. For mm-hmm. me, that if, if you can achieve that, then you've achieved something. And, and Jeff, you described it as a privilege, but do you see it as an obligation to get the word out as well? I, I have always felt that. You know, I come from a family of conservationists, but more and more lately, I, I kind of really believe um, or feel strongly that it's really important for us as, as wildlife filmmakers in the blue chip sphere is what we call this kind of pure natural history that we do um, to remind people that, you know, humans are not the center of, the world in a me- in most of the planet you know we we're so good as humans to put ourselves at the center of every picture and and in fact the there is so much going on in particularly in the natural world that has absolutely nothing to do with us and i think it's important really to kind of re-establish that balance occasionally to kind of tell stories that just have nothing to do with any human whatsoever and kind of represent the natural world and and that and to me that's the truest form of documentary that you could possibly hope for is just kind of re- reminding people that there are things happening out there that have absolutely nothing to do with us. Mm. Um, and, it's a good recalibration. And we have an effect on it. There are places, and you know, Cape Crozier is maybe one of the best examples. Is that that whole life cycle goes on regardless of any human influence at all, year in year out, without you know, for millennia. I think it's really important to kind of break people away from the drama of their daily lives and remind them that there's something else going on in the world that doesn't involve them. And, I, you know, that's that's my main drive these days. Mm-hmm. Guys, i, I got to say, thanks for letting us into to your corner of the wild. It's been uh, it's been really lovely catching up with you and hearing your stories. And, and um, I can't wait to hear what people think about this. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Great talking to you again. Jeff Wilson and Mark Smith are filmmakers behind countless nature documentaries, including the recent Disney nature film Penguins. They're also a part of the team behind the new Netflix series Our Planet. To see the clip of their amazing footage of that snow leopard chasing its prey down a steep mountainside, go to our website kuow.org slash the wild. The wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. There's a ton of information on the website if you want to find out more. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle in partnership with my work at Chris Morgan Wildlife. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. Brendan Sweeney is our managing producer. Our fact checker is April Craig. We had engineering help from Dave Brown. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks for listening.